from 88.7 FM WXDU Durham and available via podcast on the World Wide Web. This is Shooting the Bull, your weekly survey of what's happening in the Bull City, brought to you by the voices of the Durham blogosphere. The opinions expressed on this program belong to the individuals expressing them and do not necessarily reflect those of WXDU or Duke University. Good evening, folks. I'm Kevin Davis with BullCityRising.com. I'm Barry Reagan. I write at dependableerection.blogspot.com. Welcome to Shooting the Bull for Thursday, and I've forgotten the date again, Kevin. I think it's May 14th already, Barry. Wow, it's the middle of the month. It is. Tomorrow's the Ides of May. Well, I'd say beware of them, but I don't think anyone really bewares the, I, be, I, I, bewares the bewares. Ides of May. <laughs> uh, sorry, Barry. It's It's been one very bad day, but moving right along there. Yeah, the day, uh, job, the day job's been getting me down, too, Kevin. I, I, I have hardly had time to, uh, to read or write uh, anything. Barry, when are we just going to throw it to the wind, you know, Thelma and Louise it over the cliff and become that, full-time bloggers? I was trying all day. I was trying all day to remember the name of that movie. Really? Because, because I saw the new Star Trek movie last night, and there's a reference to Thelma and Louise in it, and I could not remember. I said, you know that movie with Susan Sarandon and, and, and you know, and, and Gina Day? You know, you know the what? And I couldn't remember. Just so, so close. You. Just thank so you. close. I, I love synchronicity. It, uh, it, it really works. It's nice. it's, it is nice when it works. Well, as much as we may have, have thought we've had bad Dave Sperry, nothing compared to life for about 35 municipal employees and 10 times that number school board uh, or school uh, employees, including a disproportionate number of teachers. Two, uh, two budget uh, two budget announcements have come out in the past in the past few days. I guess since the last time we were we were on the air, uh, we had Tom Bonfield, uh, city manager, um, speaking with us last week, and uh, uh, Tom was fairly forthcoming. I, I thought, considering that he hadn't made a public announcement about uh, about the fact that there would be layoffs um, uh, in the city budget, and earlier this week uh, the numbers came out, and uh, I guess the individuals uh, involved were starting to get uh, you know some some uh, secondhand reports of of some of the individuals who are affected and. Uh, you know, um, I mean, I, it, it looks like I know some of these people, so uh, so I, I don't I don't feel particularly good about that. I'm hoping that um, that folks can uh, find other positions. There are 70 or so positions that are still unfilled in 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 the in, in the city. Although, although those are well, now the ones there are 70 or so that are also slated for elimination. There may right. be other unfilled positions that they right. haven't that they haven't terminated. One of the really odd things is. You know, you kind of scratch your head at this one because it really wasn't that much of a cut, which I'm not complaining about. But it's more that, and what we're talking about here is only about less than 2% of the city staff, about more close, closer to 1% than 2%. So you're really talking about such a small number that you have to end up wondering is, are the cost cuts there purely the issue? Or was this seen as an opportunity, as it often is in large organizations, that if people are either not performing or not popular, that they become that they become uh, they become targets, and I, that's uh, not an I accusation. Believe, to the I believe city the, administration, uh, the British but. word for that is they are made redundant. That's a wonderful term, Barry. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I read British newspapers, but but you can't remember Thelma and Louise. Uh, well, I can now. <laughs> <laughs> so so the the expect to see those cuts be of some interest, but but in reality, well, I, I don't think anybody from the city, even even if that's what they're doing, and. Uh, you know, it certainly makes a certain amount of sense for anybody who's worked in a large organization. Um, I don't think anybody who works for the city uh, in, a, in an administrative capacity will ever come out and say that's what they're doing. And the other thing is just that the I mean, the remainder of the cuts are really probably not that surprising. I mean, you're not seeing raises except for the positions that um, are both considered most important and have more, I think, statutory protections for their uh, for their increases. 
you're not seeing significant cuts in programs, at least that have been announced so far. The non-city agencies, which are getting a big hit for next year, is continuing a trend that started last year. So I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't think that any of the applicants are going to be surprised. Um, but I think you'll see when you see the amounts that and the disparity of who gets non-city agency grants these days. There's such a huge difference, four thousand to two hundred ninety-two thousand. Uh, and I think you'll it'll be interesting to see how different groups and agencies do with those with those grants. You know, a couple of years ago, I was asked uh, to serve on uh, one of the citizens advisory committees that uh, helps put together the uh, NCA um, funding, and uh, it, it was an interesting process. Um, I, I I don't know I don't know how well it works. To be to be completely honest with you, I I, I don't know that I'm at liberty to say too much about uh, about my experiences um, on. On that group, but uh, it was it was quite the learning experience for me. Uh, I have not seen the list of who's getting money um, this year, and 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 what I, I don't think anyone. Uh, I'm not sure if anyone has. I don't know if the groups okay. have seen the seen the results yet. I don't think just, so. Uh, okay, but you but you know what the what the what the grant totals are are going. They've to announced the cuts. Uh -huh. Yeah. Okay. So um, yeah, I, I, and from my perspective, I'm not sure that. Um, that that's uh, a luxury that Durham really can't afford um, in the short term. You know, in the long term, uh, if if we have uh, a tax base and 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 you know a, a revenue stream that makes sense for us to do that, um, yeah, great. But at, at at a point in time when we still have uh, just an incredible number of vacant commercial and residential properties that aren't generating tax revenue for the city. Uh, I, I think we need to get that part of our house um, in order, and I think we actually need to do that fairly quickly. You know, the, the interesting thing that, <clears throat> about that, Barry, is I think where you're seeing a lot of the pain come into budgets, not as much for the, for the city, uh, but you're seeing it less from the local property taxes and even to some extent from the sales taxes as you are seeing it from the fear of what's going to happen next year, and especially from the state. You know, so you have this weird situation both in the city budget, but again, especially in the school's budget, where you have federal monies pretty much where they were last year, plus stimulus dollars, helping in targeted areas. You have local funds. I mean, our, our property tax collection rate is only lagging a couple percents behind where it was. Sales which taxes is are down significantly, though, is, not, is what I'm hearing. I'm hearing 10, 10 15 percent. At the state level, but no, we were only one half of a, of a percent off uh, year to date for sales tax. Sales tax numbers have looked really good. And when you look at where sales tax was relative to where we were pre-South Point opening, 70% higher for sales tax revenues. So there's been a massive increase there. Where, where you're seeing the pain, and the reason this hurts so much in the schools, is that the state government provides such a disproportionate amount of the funding. States, like municipalities, can't go into debt right. like the federal government can. So the state has, this, has, this, has, has grown its government so much in 10, 20 years with the population growth, suddenly has this $2 billion, now $3 billion shortfall, and there's no easy answer for that. And you have to cut one out of six, one out of seven dollars, that's much more than we're talking about at the city level. Where the city's pinch came in was from you know, flat increases, which meant they couldn't do all the things like salary increases they normally do, coupled with uh, license and fee and permit drops because construction and new business openings are down. So you see some of, of the hits there. But it's that state funding that pours in that's really painful. Uh, and, and that's really been, I think, the fear around the schools. I mean, if, if you go line, line through line, line by line, page by page through the school's budget for this year, well, everywhere if you that, go line by line through the school's I, budget. It was kind of crazy. Because, I know. Uh, I'm sorry, folks. You know, I know you turn to me for your authoritative information, <laughs> but I'm not going to be able to go through the school budget. This well, year. and, and I, have, I have to complain about this for a moment because I've, I'm not, I'm, I've been kind of annoyed that I think I was the only person who 
reports in a media-like fashion who did, because all the news accounts are repeating the bullet points from the first three pages of the school's budget. And the bullet points may entirely be accurate. But you gotta you got to go in there and do that double check. That's what newspapers should be doing. That's what TV stations should be doing, going in there and doing those checks. If you do those checks, assuming my conclusions are right, which, you know, I've, they could not be because I'm, I'm trying to re-aggregate summary data, but it makes it appear that, that uh, the majority of the cuts are happening in teaching and instruction positions, about 10% of jobs are lost versus less than 2% in administrative positions. And we really need to see the Herald Sun with their you know, new Tuesday educational section stepping up and doing that kind of coverage, or the NNO, which covered school crime yesterday, stepping up and doing coverage on the budget cuts, because this has just not gotten the attention that, that it should. Don't see a lot of, uh, of coverage about Durham um, coming from the NNO. Uh, these days, unfortunately, and, uh, and and I hope that I hope that changes. Um, and yeah, you you're right. Somebody from the Herald Sun does uh, does need to do that. I want to talk. I want to ask you, Kevin. Um, your your conclusions from looking at the budget then five times uh, as much cost savings being being generated from classroom cuts from making classrooms bigger and uh, th- than from the ad- administrative end. Almost always, when the school board comes to the to the public, right, to the to the consumers of, of public education, uh, the first thing they say is, "We're we're you know we're not going to touch the classrooms. We're gonna we're gonna do whatever we have to do to make sure the classrooms are okay." Did they say that this time? And are 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 you just the only one who's you know who's who's finding this, or did they just you know put out a budget? and not make that claim this time around. It's a little more complex than that. I don't, I don't think they're purely posturing with us. I mean, this comes back to the state issue. That's disproportionately, a disproportionate share of the teacher pay comes from the state-funded money, right? We spend over $400 million a year on DPS. Only about $100 million of that comes from the county. So a lot of the, one of the reasons why these administrative positions aren't being cut is you have things like um, the ESL interpreters. Uh, Darius Little, I believe is his name, uh, got all over this in the Herald Sun article, all over it on the op-ed pages, complaining... We're cutting teachers. Why are we cut, spending a half million on ESL interpreters? Because they're mandated. No, because they're federal no. funds. They're federal funds at a half million last year. The federal funds at a half million this year. If we cut that program, you don't get to hire seven teachers or, or ten teachers. You can't, you you can't just, juggle that money in the budget. It's like, it's like the friend of mine who used to run a, a VA hospital and was told one year he, he could get a new parking lot. And he said, I need pharmaceuticals. We're short on drugs. He said, can't help you, but I can give you a new asphalt. So I think that's that's probably where more of, of the issue is, but that's but that's where the weirdness is in this. The, the 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 district has to just take what it's given by the state. Its opportunity is to lobby the county, which provides very little funding, and the county's already being more generous than it is with other departments. But basically, the county is going to look like the bad guy in this if it does the two and a half million dollar cut that's being proposed by Mike Ruffin, as opposed to the six hundred fifty thousand that the district wants. It's this, the, the levels of accountability, responsibility, and, and, and spending authority are just completely mismatched. What's, what's the timeline on the county budget? You know, I haven't been following that as closely. Uh, I think tonight they're approving the recommended school budget at the school board level, but over the next few weeks we'll start to see the county budget move along. Right, and the school board budget then is subject to change depending on what the county actually come, comes up with, and, and we'll find that over the summer. And also with what the state legislature comes up with. Right. If the right. legislature faces some massive crisis in the next six, eight weeks, you could see this change again. Right. So so the city and the county may or may not be kind of on the same schedule. The city budget is due to be approved sometime in the next, uh, over the next few meetings. And right. promises to be extremely smooth. Uh, every, everything coming out of City Hall is that you're probably not going to see a lot of dissension on this. And a lot of that goes back to Tom Bonfield coming in and saying, before we go off and work on a budget and have you all bicker about fund balances, 
we're going to write up budget guidelines based on a retreat in February. You're going to vote on it. They voted unanimously to it. It's really hard to come back and say, I'm not happy with this budget, when you were one of those seven votes that said, I like it. Right. And what this ultimately right. is, Barry, to, to my mind, this is about a very smart city manager taking a much more active role in running the city. Right. And pushing back on this meddling that's that's happened right. in now the years. Now that we've had a year of, uh, of, of time to get acclimated, uh, we're starting to see those results. All right, we've uh, we've been talking about budget um, for quite a bit. I don't know that we have any answers. Uh, I don't know that we're going to <laughs> It's have easier to snipe than have uh, answers. And, and sometime over the over the next month, we will know exactly where the budget um, where the budget ends up. And, and hopefully, um, we'll be able to talk about that. We'll get some more people from the city in um, to fill us in on, uh, on, on what's going on. I'm Barry Reagan. I'm Kevin Davis, and you are listening to Shooting the Bull on WXDU 88.7 FM Durham. All right. Our, um, our guest tonight um, is Barbara Lau. Barbara is the, uh, is the director of the Pauli Murray Project, which is uh, a project of the Duke Human Rights Center. And um, it's, it's an interesting project. We've been talking about this um, uh, for a while, about uh, bringing you onto the show um, um, for, for quite some time. Uh, you weren't able to come on and talk about it until fairly recently because it hadn't, it hadn't been announced. So why don't you tell us a little bit about Pauli Murray and, uh, and what this project is, Barbara? Barry, thanks for inviting me today, and I'm really thrilled to be able to be here to reintroduce Durham to one of its really um, most amazing daughters, Polly Murray, and uh, through the Polly Murray Project. And as Barry has said, this is only, uh, we're, we're just looking at the beginning of the third month of this project. It's a fairly new project uh, that is part of the Duke Human Rights Center. Um, Polly Murray was a woman that actually was born in Baltimore, but she uh, moved back here when she was three years old after her mom passed away. She was part of a very important African-American family from Durham, the Fitzgerald family. And uh, she wrote an amazing book called Proud Shoes, the story of an American family that chronicles how her grandfather, who was a mixed race man from Pennsylvania, moved here after the Civil War, after working very hard actually to fight on behalf of the Union in the Civil War, moved here to help become part of the legion of people that wanted to educate newly freed slaves. Mm. He found that North Carolina, first Orange County and then Durham, was really an amazing place and that Durham was an amazing place of opportunity. And as we all know about the history of Durham, that was a really boom time in our history, that sort of post-Civil War time. So not only did he begin uh, to really work hard to become a good teacher and to teach uh, the freed slaves from the plantations and uh, people that were moving to the city. Um, he also invited the rest of his family to move here, and his brother Robert and sister Agnes, and actually his parents moved here. Now Robert Fitzgerald became uh, one of Durham's first African-American millionaires. He was one of the founders of Mechanics and Farmers Bank. He was a brick, brick maker. And uh, many of the bricks that he made, we can still see in a lot of the tobacco warehouses and buildings. But he then invested in many other businesses. So Polly Murray came from a really important family of people who felt that they had a, a responsibility for public service, but were also business people as well. There was actually sort of a joke, the rich Fitzgeralds and the poor Fitzgeralds. She came out of the strain of the poor Fitzgeralds, who were almost all educators. One of the things that's really interesting about that family is that Robert Fitzgerald married a woman named Cornelia, who was actually the product of a rape, a slave master, Sidney Smith from Orange County, uh, well known as uh, one of the families that has supported UNC, hmm. and uh, his slave Harriet. So in Polly Murray's background are slaves and slaveholders. 
There are people, free people of color. Um, there are white people from the north, black people from the south. She's really an amazing character in terms of just who she was being born. Now, what she made of that was even more exciting. Polly Murray grew up in uh, the west end of Durham neighborhood on Carroll, what's now Carroll Street. The house is still there. She was raised by her aunt Pauline Dame, who was an educator in Durham Public Schools for more than 60 years. Uh, her aunt suffered through desegregation, did not lose her job, but because of the new rules around retirement, kept having to work, work, work until mm. she uh, was capable of getting a pension. But uh, a well-known, well-loved educator at Lion Park Elementary School. Um, but Polly Murray grew up uh, in a household that really prized education that pride uh, that was very interested in race pride that had great amount great amount of dignity and respectability and she really took that with her when she went north after graduating from Hillside High School found that her southern education wasn't quite good enough had to spend another year in high school up there in New York before going to Hunter College in the 1930s she tried to go to UNC for graduate school and well, lo and behold they said no she was African American uh, or you know the one drop rule uh, but but the conversations and the letters she wrote about that actually um, brought her into contact with Eleanor Roosevelt because she wrote a letter to President Roosevelt because he had praised UNC as such a progressive place and she wanted to correct his view. Um, she ended up having a lifelong relationship as a uh, uh, with Eleanor Roosevelt. But anyway, so she couldn't go to UNC, so she decided to go to Howard Law School. And she graduated at the top of her class. Well, with that honor usually came a fellowship to Harvard. Well, couldn't go to Harvard. They didn't accept women. Huh. So she went to California, and she became the first African-American woman assistant attorney general in California. Huh. And, and this, by the way, would have been at a time when uh, women in the profession of law period was was an unusual thing to find. Much Absolutely. And African-Americans, also very unusual. So to have the confluence of those two was just, just amazing. So that was in the 1940s. And along with being a student, she was sitting down on buses and getting arrested. She and her, her fellow students were desegregating lunch counters in Washington, D.C. and being reprimanded by their school president. Um, she was a woman who was always ahead of her time. She was pushing boundaries that um, were you know, coming at her, but uh, and, but having the qualifications, the the intellectual curiosity, the ability to take on some of these challenges. So she became an important civil rights lawyer and actually did a very big book about all the race laws, about all the states in the United States, which became a very important piece of the Brown v. Board case. Hmm. But she didn't stop there, of course. She went on and, and continued her political work. There's a joke that uh, in the 60s and 70s, um, she had to make a deal with the New York Times. They would only publish one letter a week <laughs> because she was constantly writing, and she just wouldn't let things sit. She just wasn't that kind of person. She later became one of the founders of the National Organization for Women. Um, she challenged the civil rights movement by coining the term Jane Crow. Where did those, you know, overlap? We're going to fight for the rights of black people, but why aren't we fighting for the rights of women? But she also had a falling out with the National Organization for Women because of their racial policies. Hmm. And then, you know, she got a Ph.D. in law at Yale. She helped start the American Studies program at Brandeis University, where she became a tenured professor. And then after the death of a very close friend, um, she found a calling in, uh, in her faith. She had grown up an Episcopal. Um, and so in her 60s, 
before the Episcopal Church even ordained women, she left that job and went and became got a, a degree in divinity <laughs> and was one of the first five women and the first African-American woman to be ordained as an Episcopal priest. And then after she did that, this would have been the late 70s, um, she came back to Chapel Hill and, in fact, offered the Eucharist for the very first time in the church in which her grandmother Cornelia had been baptized as a slave. From in a Bible that her grandmother had given her with a ribbon in it that had been part of a bouquet that Eleanor Roosevelt had sent her, sitting on top of a podium that Mary Ruffin, the brother of the man who raped her, her grandmother's mother, her great-grandmother, had donated to the church. So really interesting ironies in some of that. Now, also, I have to say along the way, Pauli Murray was also a great writer and a poet. And uh, she wrote a book of poetry called Dark Testament and Other Poems, which is really, it's out of print now, but it's full of some amazing verse. And as I said, she wrote the very important book about Durham, um, Proud Shoes, the Story of an American Family. And then there's also an autobiography of her. But we want to work in her spirit. We, it's not, we want more people in Durham to know about Pauli Murray because we want her, them to know about these ideas that she had, these ideas to cross over. These ideas that somebody doesn't have to be just one thing or just something else. They really can hold all of those identities. And we feel that, that looking at her work, inviting people to read her work, inviting people to grapple with some of those ideas that she um, was talking about. And let me say Proud Shoes was published in 1956, <laughs> before people were really doing this combination history memoir. And there's a quote from that that I want to share with you because it's really kind of the guiding one of the guiding uh, principles of the Pauli Murray Project. And she wrote in that book, true emancipation lies in the acceptance of the whole past, in deriving strength from all my roots, in facing up to the degradation as well as the dignity of my ancestors. <laughs> now we feel like this idea is as important as it is to a person, is really important to a community. And here we are in Durham on the precipice of a couple of institutional entities trying to tell Durham's story. We've recently seen some films. We've recently heard that, you know, the Museum of Durham History is now its own nonprofit. Uh, there's activity over at the Haytai Heritage Center for a history room. And then the Common Room that's part of the Durham's Black Wall Street story, the Paris Street Advocacy Group. All of these people are trying to tell Durham's story. Well, what story are they going to tell? And who's going to decide what story they tell? Mm -hmm. And what would it mean for us to think about all the Durham stories and really so, elevate them? So, so, how, so how does the, the, the project, which I, I think is a, is a, has a three-year timeline? That's right. right? How, how does that attempt to bring all these different narratives into, into focus, into one more, co more comprehensive narrative that encompasses a lot more than any individual perspective? Well, you know, Barry, I'm not sure we can do that. I don't I, think that you can okay. make one story. I think the idea is that you create institutions that have the kind of openness for community conversation, the openness for various kinds of programming and exhibitions, um, online archives. We want to create a set of resources, a creative archival resources that tell some of those stories. Because, you know, once you hear a story, it's really hard to unlearn it, unhear it. Once you meet someone, it's really hard to hate them because you know their story then, right? That idea. Mm -hmm. um, but we hope that by doing that, by, by collecting some of the stories, by asking people about what stories need to be told, that we'll also create some community dialogues. 
where people will grapple with that dignity and mm -hmm. degradation, where Durham will start to take some of the stories that have been a little invisible or that have been uh, not so well known and use that as a way to begin to really um, grapple with some mm. of the implications. You know, who, it's the whole Sankofa idea, looking back in order to move forward in a way, because how have we, have we healed from what people refer to the Jim Crow period, American apartheid? Is that not a huge human rights violation for this entire country? Is this not something we still need to grapple with? Do you, you guys go to city council meetings? You see how things divide. You see who's talking for, for who, to who. You know, how do we begin to really look mm -hmm. at the roots of that that really are a part of our history? And, and it's interesting you say that, Barbara, because you know, I know when I walk into a museum, I, I, I get the sense I see original works and then I read what someone, someone nameless, faceless to me, has sort of written to summarize them to tell one story about it. What you're essentially saying, it's, 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 it's almost turning the idea of a collection like that on its head, rather than having many works in one story, have many works in many stories. And do you see that as a collaborative effort going along with the creation of museums? Or do you see it as also creating a work that can, that can challenge the, the, what become perhaps established assumptions in one of these new organizations? Yeah, I think what we're trying to do is to sort of challenge the master narrative, the stories that we've told about Durham. Oh, we all get along. Oh, you know, there's, there's all those kinds of things. But I also want to say that this is part of a bigger trend in museums in general. Uh, if you've had a chance to visit the Na National Museum of the American Indian, for example, and you go in there, there is no piece of text in that museum that does not have an author's name hmm. next to it. It is not the word of God saying, the Indians think. It is a particular person sharing their knowledge. Hmm. Um, there are, there's a whole coalition called the International Sites of Conscience that's a group of museums and historic places all around the world, very tied in particular to human rights abuses. How do they interpret the story of the Cambodian genocide at Tolslang? How is that organization, that place, a place for the community to grapple with that and for visitors to grapple with that? This is really a bigger trend in museums nationally, to be more community-based, to engage history as a way to look at contemporary issues. We talk about the Polly Murray Project as activating history for social change. So how do we make history active? We are part of a larger stream here in terms of these other museums. And we do want to work in coordination with all the folks that are doing this, but try to bring a constituency, uh, try to educate and mobilize a constituency of people who say, I want to see my story there too. Where, where's my story? Mm -hmm. And I think we all know just with museums, you see this <coughs> tiny percentage of what they have. We can't tell all that story at once, mm -hmm. but we want that to be a part of the mission. Now, now one, one question I have is that I, I know some of these projects haven't been fully funded yet. There's going to be a lot more in the news in the next few weeks about at least one of them in terms of uh, start and stop funding and not all the sides knowing what's going on with, with their being funded. Uh, is your plan to make the works of the Polly Murray Project available through the web or through the John Hope Franklin Center or other uh, mediums before uh, such a facility gets built? Oh, absolutely. There's no reason to wait. We want, you know, there's things that are coming online now that we'd love to put under our umbrella. It's a very open thing, not just what we're doing, but what lots of people may be doing. And, uh, you know, being a part of a much larger effort to uh, have th that material much more available to a wider public. You know, we're, we're actually getting fairly close to, to the end of the show already, um, which, which tends to happen. Um, if our listeners are people who want to contribute, 
you know, if, if, if someone listening is, is someone who says, yes, I, I want my story to be a part of that. How do they do that? How do they how do they reach you? Where do they where do they go to get in touch with you and, and, and tell their story? Gee, Barry, thanks for asking me that question. Again, my, my name is Barbara Lau. Uh, my phone number is Ooh, no, 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 no. Give away. You want to get phone numbers? Oh, it's no. my office phone number, uh, 919-613-6167, and my email is balau at duke.edu. We're currently, as I said, we're only two months into this. We're currently working on a website, and we also have a mailing list, and if you let me know that you're interested, I'm sure that if you uh, email either one of these gentlemen in the studio tonight, they can pass that along to me, and I know that their blogs are very popular. I read them on a very regular basis, and so... I also want to say that we have a steering committee. This is not just me. I am uh, the sort of uh, worker bee um, behind a group of very diverse group of business people, religious folks, m people interested in public history, people interested in Durham's story, people interested in social change that are involved uh, in, the in the steering committee. And we hope that at the end of three years, we will have, a, a, along with a, an activated constituency we will also have a report to present to city council and county commission to these organizations with a set of recommendations about how this could really work in Durham so you know we don't expect to take over any of this stuff we just we want to be a part of this stream and we want to be a loud voice I'll also say that you're a, a just incredibly um, articulate and and passionate worker bee um, when it comes to this, you've practically interviewed yourself, and it's—I I feel, I feel like I haven't had to do my job tonight. <laughs> but, but um, no, it's, this, this is great. When, when, um, we, you know, we're looking through um, through through some of this material, and in, in the very few closing seconds, we talk about um, a, a common room and a museum without walls. If you can really quickly tell us mm -hmm. what that is, where we would find those, can we do that? Uh, 20 seconds? The Common Room and the Museum Without Walls are both part of the Parish Street Advocacy Group. They're beginning to happen. You might have noticed the historic, the beautiful artistic historic markers on Parish Street. There's going to be three more of those this summer. But it's the idea that you bring history, you bring that interpretation to people. You don't wait for them to come to you. And that when we get there, we're there together and we talk. We don't just, it's not a passive experience. And I think, Barry, as you start seeing some of the revitalization plans for downtown, you'll start to see some architects bring ideas for incorporating some of these spaces into them. All right, Barbara Lau from the uh, Paulie Murray Project, thank you so much for being our guest tonight. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm Barry Reagan. I write at dependableerection.blogspot.com. I'm Kevin Davis. I write at bullcityrising.com. We will see you here next week. Uh, 